Welcome back to another episode of the Core Life Training Podcast. This is the preseason episode number seven. Your guest MC for this episode is Dana Rankin. She and her husband Mike have been to almost every single Core Life Training class we've ever done in Sisters, Oregon. So thanks, Dana, for being our guest MC on this episode. By the way, if you want to be a guest MC on an episode of the Core Life Training Podcast, you can do that. All you got to do is record a voice memo in your iPhone and say these words. This is the Core Life Training Podcast with Jeff Olson. And save that baby as an MP3 and then email it to me at jeff at corelifetraining.org. And you too can be a guest MC on the Core Life Training Podcast. All right, before we get into this episode, I want to update you on a couple of Core Life Training things that are coming up here real soon. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be back in Sisters, Oregon, uh, sharing session two of the class, The Story of the New Testament. In that class, we're looking at the structure of the canon of the New Testament. We're looking at how the books of the New Testament are ordered. We're looking at the logic of the structure and how the structure of the books or how the order of the books affects and communicates the story of the New Testament. And I'm really stoked to be coming back to Sisters and seeing all of the Core Life Trainers over there again real soon. Then also in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be starting a four-week class called Core One, Knowing God Deeply in His Word here in my town. And in that class, we'll do a little theology and a little practice. On the theology side, we're looking at how God delights to be known It's something we probably take for granted that God wants to be known. But biblically, the idea that God wants to be known by us is actually a shocker. Then we'll look at how God is known in and through his word, the scriptures. And on the practical side, I'll be sharing a simple approach to reading scripture in order to know God more deeply. So I'm going to share some of the tools that I use and a simple way that I read the Bible to know God. Uh, Not primarily my exegetical work or sermon prep. But when I sit down in the morning to open up God's word and to know him more deeply, uh, there's, there's a way that I do it, and I want to share that. It's not the only way, obviously, but I do think it's a good way, and hopefully it's a way that can help other people as well. So I'm really stoked about that class, too. Looking forward to that coming up four weeks here in November. And now on to uh, this episode. This is going to be session number three of the class, The Story of the Old Testament. Uh, in the last session, we looked at how the author of Genesis has structured the narrative or structured his story around narrative literature, a poem that's inserted in the narrative, and then a little epilogue at the end. And in the poems, he reveals his main point or the key idea of the story. In this session, I want to show you how the author of the Pentateuch structures the entire Pentateuch from Genesis through Deuteronomy in exactly the same way and uses the exact same technique to give you the key idea or the the main idea uh, of the story of the Pentateuch. I think most people, when they read the Pentateuch, after they get through the creation account and some of the early stories, get into like the laws, and then there's more laws, and then there's more laws, and then they get bogged down, and ultimately by uh, Leviticus chapter 12 or something, they quit and really wonder how any of that has anything to do with them. And I want to show you through the structure how the author has indicated his message. And the truth is, the Pentateuch does have laws in it. Uh, But it's not a story primarily about laws, and I'll I'll show you what the story is about, and I think you'll see that it actually has just about everything to do with you. And then one last thing, I think uh, in the last episode I said I was going to give you one more session of this class in the podcast, 
and then uh, give you a way that you could get this whole class if you like. Uh, I changed my mind and I'm going to give you this session plus four more. So I want to take you all the way through the end of the book of Kings, uh, Second Kings, and then we'll move on to some other things in the podcast. But if you're digging the class and you're interested in having the whole class, I'll put a link in the description below and you can go and buy the entire class. Now what you're going to get is 15 class videos. They're broken up into about 25 minute chunks. You'll also be able to download the entire class in MP3 format in case you want it on the go, if you want it in the car or on a run or anything like that. And then you can also download the class notes. It's 68 pages in ebook format. Uh, you can get it as a PDF. So you can have all that. I'll leave a link below if you want to buy the whole class and just get to it. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to give you this session and then three more sessions. I'm going to take you all the way through the end of 2 Kings in the story of the Old Testament. But for now, let's get to this session. This is session three of the story of the Old Testament. I want you to grab a Bible, grab a notebook, and your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. All right, so look, let's look at the whole structure, or the structure of the whole Pentateuch. Genesis 1 to 48 is mostly narrative. Now, we've already seen poems in there, right? But mostly it's a narrative. Like that whole big section is mostly narrative. And then Genesis 49, if you look at that, it's a big, giant poem. The whole chapter is just a big, giant poem. And Genesis 50 is the last, uh, is the narrative epilogue that comes at the end of it. So yeah, I mean, if you looked at Genesis 49, it should, in your English Bible, it should be like indented differently than the narrative text around it. So that's one big, giant poem. Uh, number, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 1 from, to Numbers 22 is mostly narrative. Now there's a poem, big poem in Exodus 15, but mostly it's narrative. And then Numbers 23 and 24 are two whole chapters of poem. It's all poetic literature. And then Numbers 24, 25 is just one verse, but it's the little narrative epilogue at the end of it. And then Numbers 25 through all the way to the end of Deuteronomy 31 is narrative. And then 32 and 33 is a big section of Hebrew poetry. And then uh, Deuteronomy 34 is narrative literature. So you can see the author has used that same technique, right, of narrative poetry, epilogue. And as we've seen, he puts important things in the poems. So if we look inside these poems, we'll see some important things about his story. Ultimately, he's going to tell us what his whole story is all about in those poems. So let's look at Genesis 49. And let's, let's start here by looking at how these poems get put into the text. I'll show you a picture that kind of illustrates how these poems get put into the text. In each of these cases, uh, the poem starts with a central character in the story bringing a group of people together and telling them what's going to happen in the last days. So all three poems start that way. It's kind of weird. Uh, almost like an author meant to do that. Right? Uh, so let's, uh, let's look at Genesis 49, uh, 49.1. Jacob summoned all of his sons. This is his blessing before he dies. Jacob summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves. And that's that assemble, when he says assemble yourselves, that's in like the imperative, it's a command. Imperative voice. You all get together, right? That I might tell you what will befall you. Now my, my English Bible here says in the days to come. 
Is that what yours says? This is Genesis 49.1. Mine says, let me tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Does anybody have something different than that? In the days to come. I'm looking at that I phrase. Tell you what shall be or befall you in the last days. In the last days. Are you reading the notes or the text? No, that's the text. In the what what version are you reading? This is the New Geneva. New Geneva. In the last days. In the last days. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's good. Because this is an important phrase. Okay? Literally the text says. I want to tell you what will happen to you in the last days. And that phrase comes right out of like Isaiah, Ezekiel, right? This is an end times phrase. So in my Bible, in the New American Standard, it says, I'm going to tell you what will happen in the days to come. What, what does the days to come mean? Tomorrow. Right, yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah. Hey, I'm a, here's our family, is Jacob telling his 12 sons, here's our family calendar for next week, right? So what's going to happen in the days to come? But that's not what the, text, the Hebrew text says. Jacob's not given the family calendar for the next two weeks. He's, he's saying, I have a prophetic message about the last days that I want to tell you. Okay, so that phrase, in the last days, is crucial. Right? It, it only occurs a few times here in the Pentateuch, in these poems. And then you find it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets. And it's end time stuff. Okay? So uh, in this case, it's Jacob that's the central figure. He calls an audience together and says, I want to tell you what's going to happen in the last days. Uh, look over at Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24, verse 12. Uh, this is the story of Balaam and Balak. Israel's kind of rolling through the wilderness, and they're trying to get to the promised land. And Balak uh, is a king of one of the nations, and he, he doesn't like them coming through. And he wants to hire this prophet guy, Balaam, to curse Israel. Now remember way back in, in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. So if you're going to curse Israel, it's going to be a problem. Well, Balaam comes to, or Balak comes to Balaam, and Balak says, I want to pay you to curse Israel. And Balaam says, well, I can only tell you what the Lord says. I can only say what the Lord says, but if you want to pay me, let's do this. So Balak pays him, and what does Balaam do? He blesses Israel. And Balak's like, what the heck, man? Like, I paid you to curse them. And Balaam said, look, I told you I can only say what God said. But if you want to pay me, let's go for it. So Balak pays him again. And Balaam blesses Israel again. Um, I'm not sure if Balaam's a good guy or a bad guy here, right, in the story. Uh, but if you look at 24... Uh, verse 12, Balaam said, I, I told your messengers that what, I could only say what the Lord said. Verse 14 of chapter 24. This is in Numbers 24, 14. Now behold, I'm going to go to my people and uh, come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people. And what does your text say? In the latter days? So my text says in the days to come again. What, Mark, what did your text say in Genesis 49? So... In one place it says days to come, and then it says latter days. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase. I don't know why in the world they translate it differently. It's the exact same phrase. It's in the last days. Is Balaam is saying, I have a prophetic message about the end times for you, and it's what Israel will do to your nation. Here we go. Right? Does that make sense? And then if you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, 
Uh, you won't be surprised to see the exact same thing, but I have to show it to you anyway. Can't just tell you. Yeah, Deuteronomy 31, verse 25. Uh, well, we can, we can look at verse... Uh, let's see. Well, let's start in verse 24. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, 24. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. What are these laws for? Moses says they're a witness against you. Are, they, are these laws to help them be righteous and do what's right? Kind of, but not really. Moses says these are going to testify against you how bad you are. Now look what he says. Because I know your rebellion and I know your stubbornness. Uh, Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? So just quick aside here. Uh, what time is it? Oh, nice, we got time. Quick aside. You, it's easy to imagine that, and I, I kind of learned this in Sunday school somewhere. I, nobody taught it to me, but I, the impression I got was Israel is God's chosen people, and they're trying to follow the Lord according to, you know, they're trying to follow God according to the law. And we're God's chosen people of the church, and we try to follow the Lord according to the New Testament. But if you actually read the story of Israel, they never try to follow the Lord. Not once, from day one until the very end. I mean, until Jesus comes, they're still opposing him, right? So they bring their idols out of Egypt. So for 400 years in Egypt, they don't even know who the Lord is, right? When God meets Moses at the burning bush, Moses is like, who the heck are you? Like, I'm going to go tell Israel, let, you know, we're going to follow God, and who are you? They don't even know who he is. So they've been worshiping Egyptian idols, and they just bring them out of Egypt, and they never quit. And so the whole way through, Moses is like, what, what, what are they doing the whole way through? Oh, man, let's go back to Egypt. It was awesome. It was so good there. <laughs> right? They're, rebe they're rebelling against the Lord from the beginning to the end, and later on we'll talk maybe more about it, but... Moses says, look, you've been horrible when I'm around. It's only going to get worse from here. And these laws are going to testify against you. So in verse 28, he says, Assemble to me all the elders. There's that command. Gather together all the elders. For I know that after my death that you'll act corruptly and uh, turn from the way that which I have commanded you, and you'll do, do evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, so you'll act corruptly and turn from the way which I've commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter day. So my text says now, it has translated this phrase days to come twice in the New American Standard. Now all of a sudden it wants to translate it latter days. It's the same phrase, in the last days. Right? Moses also, right before this big poem, just like before the other two poems, calls an audience together and says, I have a message for you about the last days. Here we go. So you can see what the author has done with these poems is uh, not only is he trying to give us like sort of the history of Israel here, but in these poems he says, my book is not about just Israel's history. What is my book about? It's about the last days. In, in, the, in these crucial moments, in these poems where he's going to thematize the story, he says, I want to tell you what's going to happen in the last days. So already we can see the author of the Pentateuch is pointing us to the end times, to the last days. His message is not just history, it's prophecy. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, so uh, so our, the guys that translate our English Bibles are—they're all brilliant. They're you know in the, the guys that translate the Old Testament—they're Hebrew scholars, like I mean like professional Hebrew scholars. Like I took Hebrew, I know it, but not, you know I'm not a professional Hebrew scholar. These guys are scholars of the Hebrew language. Um, same thing in the New Testament with Greek. Like these guys are professional scholars of it. Uh, I would say I, I I'm not in the translating committee decision room for why they choose to do different things here I would say at least in this particular phrase you should be translating it literally and you should translate it the same way every time uh, I, I really can't imagine I, I have no idea why what would cause them to translate it tradition. like what tradition. I, I really have no idea uh, yeah maybe it's uh, tradition uh, they're looking at context a little differently um, I really don't know what would cause them to translate this differently uh, from like in the days to come to the latter days and I, I don't know. In the last days. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so in, in Hebrew the phrase is biachrit hayamim. Uh, the, the, word, the sound b is a little preposition in. Achrit is last or end. And hayamim is the days. So in the last of the days. I mean, that's as literal as you can get it. And I really have no idea how you can go in the days to come from there. I have, I have no idea what they're doing. Yeah, so here's the family calendar for next week. You've got practice, and you've got choir, and here we go. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. All right, so now let's, the author clearly wants us to see something about the last days. Let's see what he tells us about the last days. Um, maybe he's got something really important in e each of these poems. Uh, so let's go back to Genesis 49. Genesis 49 is Jacob's blessing uh, before his death. Tells his sons, I want to let you all know what's going to happen in the last days. And then he has these little uh, sort of poetic pictures of each of his sons. What's going to happen to their families. So Reuben is the firstborn. And, you know... Things are going to go okay for him. I mean, for each of these sons, things either go okay or not so great. But the key is in verse 10, the section about Judah. This is the key. And I'll show you why it's the key here, because the, he says something that should kind of catch us uh, off guard. Sorry, it's verse 8. Uh, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Does that, that sound important? Does that sound familiar? That sounds like Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? So Judah's not the firstborn, but all of a sudden all the brothers are going to praise him. So he's going to be the important family here. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's, will your father's sons will bow down to you. And here's this little poem about how strong and valiant and mighty Judah's family will be. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches and he lies down like a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. Judah's family is going to be tough, right? You just don't mess with Judah's family, basically. Verse 10. My text says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Who carries the scepter? Kings do, right? Kings carry. Are there any kings in Israel yet? We haven't met a single king in Israel. So we've met Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But there are no kings in Israel. This is a family. 
And yet, Jacob says to Judah, the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Apparently, whenever there are kings, they're going to come from the tribe of Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. My text says Shiloh comes. Does anybody have something different than Shiloh? Tell me you got something different than Shiloh. Nope, just Shiloh. Okay, you may have it in a, what? Tribute, yeah. Um, Shiloh is just bringing the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word there is Shiloh. And it's just putting that Hebrew word in English letters. Right, Shiloh. You just take the Hebrew letters and put English letters. Um, the problem is that doesn't, what, what the heck is Shiloh? And the, the group of letters that make the word Shiloh in Hebrew, and it's really a group of words together. They kind of all pile together to make a, a compound word. It really says, until he comes to whom it belongs. And you may have a note. Um, I have a note in my Bible at the bottom. It says, until he comes to Shiloh, or until he comes to whom it belongs. And that's the best translation right there. Until he comes to whom it belongs. In other words, let's, let me put this in real simple English. Judah's family will take care of the kingdom, and they will carry the scepter until the king comes to whom that scepter really belongs. So the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between Judah's feet until he comes to whom it belongs. There will come a king from the tribe of Judah who actually owns the scepter. It belongs to him. And to him, that is to the king who comes, who owns that scepter, will be the obedience of all the peoples. And the word peoples means nations, right? It means not just the people of Israel. Peoples Plural means nations, the Hebrew word for nations. So this king that comes from the tribe of Judah will rule over all the nations in the last days. That's the, that's the poem in Genesis 49. In the last days, a king will come from the tribe of Judah and he'll rule over all the nations. So that, there's the message about the last days from Genesis 49. Now the rest of Judah's family, or Jacob's family, you know, it goes pretty good for some and not so good for others. But it's Judah's family now. We're, we're tracing family lines, right? So we, it was Eve's family and Noah's family and Shem's family. And now it's Judah's family that we need to be pay, paying attention to. And we should be looking for a king to come from Judah's family. So in Genesis 49, it's Judah's family that's blessed. The king will come from Judah's family. Look at Numbers 24. So again, this is the Balaam, Balaam and Balak story. And Balak hires Balaam again, and Balaam says, all right, if you'll pay me. <laughs> and then he pays him, so he lets him have it. And here's what he says. Behold, I'm going to go to my people. Come, I'll, I'll advise you what this people will do to your people in the last days. And Balaam took up this discourse, and he said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes is open." the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. In other words, Balaam is saying, I'm going to speak a word of prophecy. I, I get visions from the Lord. I know the mind and heart of the Lord. The Lord gives me the messages. He says, falling down, uh, 
yet having my eyes uncovered. So in other words, I bow down before the Lord, but I still see what's going on. My eyes are to the ground, but I still see what's going on, right? I see him, but not now. I wonder who the him is. I behold him, but not near. Why does he say not now and not near? Because he's already told us we're talking about the, the last days, right? A star will come forth from Jacob. Huh. Does he mean like an American Idol kind of star? Like, no, he's really picturing this person as like one of the stars of heaven. A scepter will arise from Israel. Hey, didn't we see that in Genesis 49? In the other poem that we just read, we read about a, a scepter from Israel. Now in this poem, in the last days, a king will come from Israel in the last days. And he'll crush through the head of Moab, the forehead of Moab, and he'll tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be a possession, and Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. In other words, this king that comes in the last day will lead Israel in defeat of all the nations. Now, that, that's a, almost exactly what we just read in Genesis 49. Kind of like the author's trying to tell us something here, right? Whenever somebody repeats something over and over, you kind of get, that's like sort of their main point. Hey, I want you to come over for dinner tonight, 6 o'clock, right? 6 o'clock, my house, 6 o'clock, bring some good snacks, it's going to be great. 6 o'clock, be there. What's the important part? 6 o'clock, right? If I say a king's coming in the last days to rule over all the nations forever, king's coming in the last days to rule over the nations forever, king's coming in the last days, what's the important part of the story here? King's coming. Right. So Balaam says exactly what Jacob says. In the last days, a king will come from the tribe of Judah to rule over all the nations. So there's the poem of Numbers 24. And then let's look at the poem of Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of explain Deuteronomy 32 and 33 real quickly. Deuteronomy 32 uh, is about God choosing Israel and selecting them as his chosen people. Um, and how he cared for them in the wilderness, and how they were meant to enjoy the promised land, but instead they got arrogant and proud, and they rebelled against the Lord, and they rejected the Lord all the way through. That's a nice poem, huh? Hey, God chose you, cared for you, meant to bless you in the promised land, and you did nothing but rebel against him in poetic form. Awesome. That's, that's number, uh, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 33 is Moses' blessing just before he dies, just like Jacob blessed his sons just before he died. Deuteronomy 33. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. Quote, he said, now who's the he here? It's Moses. and You'll see why this is important in just a minute. We want to trace the pronouns. He, his, and him, and all that. Those, let's, we'll just trace them. He said, that is, Moses said, quote, The Lord came from Sinai, and dawned from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones, and at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Now this is a poetic picture of God showing up as a warrior. He's got 10,000 people, 10,000 holy ones in his army. He's got flashing lightning. 
And it's this sort of this glorious picture. This is Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Indeed, he loves the people. Who loves the people? He. Who's he? In, in the poem. It's the Lord, right? The Lord came from Sinai, and, or, yeah, Sinai, and he shone, dawned on them from Seir. He's got holy, 10,000 holy ones and flashing lightning, and he loves the people. So the he is still the Lord, right? Indeed, he loves the, he loves the people. And all your holy ones are in your hand. Who's the your? It's the Lord still. And they followed in your steps, and everyone receives of your words. So here in this poem, the Lord is portrayed as a mighty warrior and a shepherd who takes care of his people. Verse 4. Moses charged us with a law. Did Moses say Moses charged us with a law? Now all this... So... Moses said, and now all of a sudden, us is saying, Moses charged us with a law. We had a singular speaker at the beginning, Moses, bless the people. Now all of a sudden, we have a group of people saying, Moses blessed us with a law. Moses was speaking, now us is speaking about Moses. That's weird. Right? Kind of weird. I'll, sh- I'll show you how it fits. I'll show you how it fits. Hang tight. Moses charged us with a law a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun. Jeshurun is another name for Israel. Who was king in Israel in this poem? He should be the Lord, right? But in the poem, who's the he? <laughs> who's the he here? You know, you know English, like you're, you got grammar, right? You, you look at the for, so the for the pronoun he. You look at the nearest antecedent reference, right? The nearest subject, and who's the nearest subject? Moses. So let me let me put it. Let me draw it this way. So here's kind of a, a picture of this. In verses two and three, it's the Lord. He, his, your. It's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And then in verse four, all of a sudden Moses gets kind of put in there as the subject. And then in verse 5, he was king. If there's no verse 4, who's king in Israel? It's the Lord for sure, right? The Lord was a mighty warrior, he was a shepherd of his people, and he was king in Jeshurun. That's, that's an easy poem, right? It's perfect. But somebody put verse 4 in there. And now all of a sudden the Lord isn't the subject of the he of verse 5. The king in verse 5 is now all of a sudden Moses. Right? Now Moses was never actually king in Israel, but in the poem he's portrayed like Israel's sort of prototype king. If Israel had a king back then, it would have been a guy like Moses. It's Moses being portrayed as a king. You see, you see that little verse? Verse 4 is kind of killer here. It's like the, it's the, what's the word I want to use here? What's that? It's a game changer. It is a game changer, for sure. It's the piece that doesn't fit, right? One of these things doesn't belong here. It's verse 4. What version are you reading? It says, thus the Lord. Yeah, see, that's not, that's the, the word the Lord is not in there. The ESV is helping at that point. It does not say the Lord 
was King and Jeshurun. They're making an interpretive move. They're asking the question, who was, who was, King, who was King and Jeshurun? The ESV right there, the English Standard Version, is interpreting that for you and saying, skip verse 4, let's go back up top, the Lord was king. And they shouldn't do that. Because the word the Lord is not in there. Not in the Hebrew text. No, he wasn't the actual king, but in this poem, remember in, po in poetry, in poetry we're talking like imagery and stuff like that. So Moses is being portrayed like a king. He's being talked about like Israel's king. In other words, back then in the wilderness, Moses was poetically sort of like Israel's king. He's portrayed as Israel's sort of prototype before there ever was a king. He's portrayed as Israel's prototype king. So what is the actual Hebrew word then? He. <laughs> Just he. <laughs> well, yeah, it's actually the verb to be, third person, singular. <laughs> he was. It's the verb to be. He was. See, I never knew any of this until I took Hebrew and Greek. Man, I didn't know grammar like this. So literally the text says, he was king in, in Jeshurun. The question is... NIV Right. New American Standard says he and they, that's fine. The question we have to interpret here is who does the he refer to? The ESV is helping us by skipping verse 4 back up to verses 2 and 3. And they shouldn't do that. The author, if the author wanted us to think of the Lord as king, he would have left verse 4 out. But there's a verse 4 in there that we've got to deal with. And grammatically, the, the rules of grammar tell me that pronoun he goes back to the nearest antecedent subject, which is Moses. And the rules of Hebrew grammar would work the same way. Same thing. Yep. Same thing. So what's this all mean? So what's this all mean? <laughs> <laughs> so what are we getting at here? Well, in, in the first two poems, we met a king in Israel. In the third poem, in, in all three poems, we're talking about the last days. Now in all three poems... There's a king in Israel in the last days. In this case now, the king in the last days, the king who will come in the last days, is portrayed like Moses. When he comes, he's going to look a lot like Moses did. Now, by the way, if we skip back to Deuteronomy 18, there's just another little piece about Moses that we got to throw in here before we wrap up. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses tells the people that you can't, you can't go to tarot card readers and crystal ball readers, mediums and spiritists like the nations do when you go into the land. Those are false ways of finding God's will. Don't do that. Verse 15, how you can find God's will, essentially he says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among, the uh, from among you and from among your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So as readers, when we get done with Deuteronomy 18, we're thinking, okay, I'm looking for a prophet like Moses. And in Deuteronomy 33, now I'm looking for a prophet king like Moses. 
And by the way, Moses kind of serves as Israel's prototype priest as well. Right? He's, he's the guy that gets to go into the tabernacle. He's the guy that gets to deal with the Lord. He, before there really are priests, he's kind of the priest. What's that? Goes to the mountain and all like that. Yeah. So the poem, the book of Deuteronomy, and particularly the poem of Deuteronomy, now wants me to expect a prophet, priest, king like Moses to come in the last days. And if you combine that with the other two poems that we've read, and they, they all say essentially the same thing. In the last days, a king will come from the tribe of Judah. He'll rule over all the nations forever. And he'll be a prophet, priest, king like Moses. All right, any, any questions about that? We're going to wrap up here in seven minutes. Okay, I just want to clarify. Yep. The last things that they're talking about are the coming of Jesus or the very end, second coming? Yeah, no, good question. Uh, we'll see. We'll see here. Well, we'll see right now when, uh, when the last days are. Okay? So we'll go. We'll skip over to the New Testament here in a minute. And we'll see how New Testament authors read this stuff. So what I've tried to do is show you this from the Old Testament itself. We haven't started with the Gospels and then said, hey, let's go find that back there. I want, I want, to, I want you to see what the author of the Old Testament himself is getting at. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and see if they're reading it right. All right, let's see if they get this straight. Okay. So uh, when, are, when are the last days? Uh, well, let's, there's a, a final note here. When will this prophet, priest, king like Moses come from the tribe of Judah to rule over all the nations forever? There's a final note in Deuteronomy 34. And if you look at Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the land. And the Lord said to him, this is the land, is verse 4, Deuteronomy 34, verse 4. This is the land which I swore to Abraham. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Did Moses write that? No, no. no clearly Moses did not sit down and go, Moses went up the mountain and died there. Okay? So who wrote this? Some people think Joshua wrote this. But we'll see down here. The author gives us a clue how far after Moses died that this gets written. Okay? So look at verse 9. Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Moses laid his hand. Hey, that's good news, man. We need, we need another leader. And the sons of Israel listened to him. Hey, wait a minute. Remember Deuteronomy 18, 15? The prophet like Moses, everybody would listen to him. Hey, maybe Joshua's our guy. Like maybe Joshua's the guy that we should be expecting. Verse 10. Since that time, since the time of Moses' death, no prophet arose again in Israel like Moses. And let me say that again, because your English translation may make this a little confusing. No prophet arose again in Israel. What does that mean? What, what, how many prophets have come and gone if a guy can say, no prophet arose again in Israel like Moses. How many prophets have come and gone? All of them have come and gone. No prophet arose again in Israel. Is there a time length? Does it change the timeline? No, it says none like Moses. Right. It says no prophet. 
no prophet again arose in Israel like Moses. So the, so the guy that we're looking for here, the one like Moses, all the prophets, all the prophets have come and gone, and we still haven't found the one we're looking for, like Moses. Now your text may say, since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. No prophet has arisen. Now, if Joshua wrote that, like, two years later, how important of a statement is that? It's like next month. Well, yep, no prophets arose like Moses. I guess we're still waiting. So that, that way, the way that that's translated is confusing because it could kind of imply, like, next month or next year. But the Hebrew text is very clear. Since that time, no prophet again arose in Israel like Moses. So here's, here's the... Whom the, right. right. So here's, here's, the, here's the picture. The author of Deuteronomy 34.10 can look over the history of all the prophets of Israel and say, nope, they were not the one like Moses. They're not the prophet, priest, king like Moses whom God knew face to face. None of those were him. So he's looking back over the whole history of Israel's prophets. Let's, let's skip over to the New Testament then and let's see if the New Testament authors are reading the story of the Pentateuch correctly. This would be in Acts chapter 3. Alright, so Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching to the crowd after he heals a lame man. This is Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. He's preaching after he's healed the lame man. And he says... Uh, uh, You've all put to death the Prince of Glory. You've, you've killed Jesus. Verse 17, I know you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did, but the things announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ, his, Christ would suffer, has thus, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore repent uh, and return so that your sins might be wiped away. And that he might send Jesus the Christ who's appointed for you. Verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15. And who does he mean in this context? To him you shall give heed, or you shall listen to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And then in verse 26, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. Peter is preaching about Jesus. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 18, saying the prophet like Moses has now come. Now, is he looking at Jesus going, well, I think he's a prophet and I like him as a prophet. I'll go find a verse about a prophet and just say this is the guy. Now, he's, he's read Deuteronomy 34. Right, so he's read his Pentateuch. He knows that a prophet, priest, king like Moses will come. He's read Deuteronomy 34, and he's like, well, it's definitely coming after all the prophets. Well, there hasn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years until John the Baptist shows up in Peter's day. Right? And all Peter's doing is saying, I've read my Bible, and the prophet that Moses talked about, and the prophet that the author of Deuteronomy 34 talked about, after all the prophets, that one like Moses has now come, and it's Jesus. So he's not reading his ideas back onto the text. He's just read the text 
said, that the author's telling me about a prophet, priest, king like Moses who will come in the last days. It's Jesus. All right, so there's the story of the, the story of the Pentateuch, or the story of the law. And next time we get together, we'll go over the story of the prophets. All right, dig it. That is it for this episode of the Core Life Training Podcast. Thanks so much for checking it out. If you are liking what we're doing, would you do us a huge favor and spread the word, right? Spread the love around. Let people know how they can connect up with the Core Life Training Podcast and get a hold of that. Also, would you do us a big favor and go on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review? Uh, the more and better ratings and reviews that you get, the easier it is for people to find you in the search engine at iTunes. So we'd really appreciate that. Also, if you have questions about what we're doing or uh, like a Bible or theology question or a topic that you would like us to maybe address on the, on the Core Life Training Podcast, uh, I would love to interact with you on that. Would you email that to me at jeff at corelifetraining.org? And lastly, if you would like to get a hold of the class, the story of the Old Testament, if you want the videos, audio, and notes, just hit that link below and you can get dialed into the entire class. All right? That's it, man. Thank you so much for checking this episode out. I am Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible, and I will check you later. Bye.